The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. We have to figure this out. What's wrong with the science? Okay. The Spartan virus removes the adenosine deaminase gene from your DNA. Removes the ADA gene and your immune system will simply vanish. Yeah, but I'm not getting sick. It's only a matter of time. Okay. So how does it work? How does the virus remove the ADA gene? A process called CRISPR-Cas9. CRISPR-Cas9. RNA and a protein cutting genes at exact locations. Exactly. But in this instance, used as a weapon. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 8th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Banned on YouTube, the second it went public. Robert's interview earlier this week with molecular biologist Dr. Laura Braden is fortunately available in its entirety on Just Right's other video channel platforms, including Rumble, BitChute, and Odyssey. Now considered a badge of honor, YouTube bans have practically become the good housekeeping seal of approval on the truth. And it is in recognition of that honor that we present Dr. Braden's message to our own international radio audience and in a podcast format for audio audiences everywhere. Not that we wouldn't have done that anyway. (laughs) But it does beg the question, doesn't it? What could a molecular biologist be saying that could possibly warrant censorship? Well, stick around and we'll find out right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show with a donation or contribution. Because as always... Your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. We're honored today to be joined by Dr. Laura Braden, and she has a story to tell in this age of cancel culture, taking back our freedoms here in Canada uh, against the draconian measures that we've witnessed over the last three years now. Mm -hmm. And I'll ask you first, um, Laura, if we could, to introduce yourself to our audience and uh, tell us uh, then about your story. First of all, Robert, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. My pleasure. Um, yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. So thank you for that. And, and hello to your audience and your, and your listeners. Um, yeah, so my name is Dr. Laura Marie Braden. I, I am a molecular biologist by trade. Um, about 15 years of schooling, which is amazing when you think about it. A lot, a lot of schooling. I was a professional student, really. Couldn't get enough of it. And I'm originally from British Columbia. So I did um, a majority of my education at the University of Victoria on Vancouver Island. Lived on the beautiful Vancouver Island. um, Explored, set up my roots there. And then after my doctorate, um, was recruited to come to tiny little old PEI on, on the east coast of Canada. And uh, 
I, I, I hemmed in a hod because it could have been Norway, right? So I was choosing which island do I want to go to? And, and it turned out that Prince Edward Island is, is where I landed um, for a job. Um, and that job was a, a postdoctoral fellowship in pathology and immunobiology. So just following my passions across Canada. And then I subsequently met my husband and decided to put down my roots here permanently in PEI. And uh, after my first postdoc, the local university, um, I did another one. Um, and then during that time, got recruited for my real-time job, which was for a private biotech company here on PEI. But I always, throughout my education, loved to mentor and, and work with students. I was always working with students. And so I kept in my faculty position, adjunct faculty, um, at the Atlantic Veterinary College Department of uh, Veterinary Medicine. Um, and really, it was really the best case scenario, Robert. I was living the dream. Um, yeah, I was living the dream. And and then um, we started having a family and now I have two beautiful kids um, and we live on this flat little sandbar and a uh, hobby farm and do all the things that life requires for you to be happy. Yeah. So it's been wonderful. Yes. DEI is a beautiful province. Yes. So everything sounded rosy up until recently. Why don't you tell us what happened? Yeah, it, it was. I um. I really was uh, living the dream. And I think one thing that I feel is important is that I was just starting my career. Like, I think in total, it was up to 18. I was at 18 years of post-secondary education and training. I was presenting my research all over the world. I was an invited speaker. Um, you know, I was, I was known as the expert in my field, which is molecular immunology. And it, I'd like to quickly point out a lot of people on the internet, I seem <laughs> to see, they, they, they try to, you know, the ad hominem attacks against me because I studied salmon and a parasite, sea lice. And, and, they, and they sometimes, they try to use that to denigrate my, my education, which I think is very amusing because all of my training was in human immunology and human molecular biology, which is the fundamentals for when you learn in, you know, in your education. So I just, I just wanted to point that out. Although I was studying fish at the time, it was at the molecular level, everything's the same. Um, which is wonderful, and it allows for cross-species comparisons, and you can really get into the nitty-gritty of the science. So yeah, I was just starting my career um, program lead in, 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 in immunology and molecular biology, had people working in, I was building my dream team, I was working um, with some cutting-edge techniques that I've always dreamed of doing, like it was awesome. And then after my first maternity leave, I came back to work, and then the following winter, we had this very strange virus kind of emerge with, you know, the associated fear propaganda that we were seeing in social media and the mainstream narrative of, you know, this really scary virus and nobody knew it was happening. And, and that was all fine and dandy, but there was an interesting recombinant signature in the viral genetic code, which now we know all over the place. You can see, you know, the findings starting to disclose the fact that it's been made in a lab. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. That's that's been pretty much proven true. At the time, if you spoke about that, your colleagues would laugh at you. But that doesn't preclude the fact that we should have a conversation, guys. There's this really strange signature in the in the gene genetic code of this virus. That's odd. Should we talk about it? Oh, shut up. <laughs> you know, just that kind of can't. Don't talk about it. Ugh. Anyway, so at the very beginning, it was very odd. But, you know, we just kept doing our thing and, and, um, but it didn't sit well with me, Robert. I don't like to not to be told to sit down and shut up. I've never been that person. Not since I was born. Have I been that? Ask my parents. 
<laughs> and now I'm paying for it with my own children. But you know, I, it, where's the conversation? You go to school for this many years. The whole point is to learn how to ask questions and how to test hypotheses and how to engage in scientific discourse. You go to a conference in Norway or Spain or wherever I've been all over the world for conferences. You want these questions because that makes you a better scientist. And that opens your eyes to things that maybe you haven't seen. That is the literal epitome of science. Yet all of a sudden in 2020, that just went out the window and it, it like completely died. And it was all of a sudden taboo to ask any single question. The phrase going around at the time was the science is settled. Right. Much like with climate change. And, uh, you know, having been involved in science myself, one thing you know is that that phrase does not make sense. You get up in the morning as a scientist knowing that you, you are ignorant about something and you have to go find out about something and something's change all the time. So when I hear the science is settled, I know it can't be from a scientist. That's correct. It's a politician. That's a politician because they don't understand what the actual word of science means. Tamara Ugolini here with Rebel News, bringing you an access to information document that shows indiscriminate masking of healthy people and mandates that followed were politically, not scientifically motivated in Canada. The communications take place between April 11th and May 16th, 2020. Now for some context, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic on March 11th, 2020. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. So these discussions with the Public Health Agency of Canada didn't pick up until a month later. And even then, masking was barely on the radar. And all of this came to us through an access to information requests. Let's go back to the very beginning because it all started when Canada's chief public health overlord, Theresa Tam, responded to an email from Dr. Harpreet Kochar, who was the then Associate Deputy Minister for Health Canada. On April 11th, he asked Tina Nemensayaki, Senior Associate Deputy Minister at Employment and Social Development Canada, if Theresa Tam had intent to issue guidance on the use of masks when people are unable to social distance. The first sentence of Tam's response on April 12th is telling. We have no plans on providing guidance to the questions below, but looks like GC, that's Government of Canada, and OGDs, that's other government departments, want us to provide further guidance for certain settings. It seems pretty clear by this email that the Public Health Agency of Canada had no intent on issuing indiscriminate masking guidance. But Tina Nemensayaki isn't pleased with that. She says that they are being asked to look to clarify guidance. What guidance do we have on general wearing of face coverings for Canadians? We probably need to tighten to make public health positions slash considerations clearer. Once we add the patterns on how to make a mask that is in and of itself will be seen as further endorsement of wearing of non-medical mask. So it was the government of Canada pressuring public health, I mean, trust the political science, right? 
Next, Barbara Raymond chimes in. Her most useful read was a study in the British Medical Journal based on a belief system. Her bullet point reads, in the face of a pandemic, the search for perfect evidence may be the enemy of good policy. As with parachutes for jumping out of airplanes, wow, what a comparison. It is time to act without waiting for randomized control trial evidence. I know from previous interviews that you were actually quite uh, proficient in the polymerase chain reaction testing, and yes. um, you know a lot about it. And these things started to bug you, and you became outspoken. And right. what happened right. then? Yeah, I mean, it, it bugged me and bugged me and bugged me. And for a long time, I wasn't outspoken. I mean, I was in my circle, but I wasn't really saying it from the top of the tallest rooftops yet. What happened for me is when they brought this untested, unnecessary gene therapy product to PEI and started pushing it in the arms of children. Yeah. Yeah. Career be damned. I'm not going to sit on that side of history because that's the wrong side of history. And actually it was Two weeks ago, the anniversary of when I came out publicly, and it was the, the International Day of the Child, and there was a rally in PEI here in Charlottetown. And I got on the stage, and there was a, three or 400 people, um, which is a big outing for, for little PEI. And I just asked some very rhetorical questions, and the number of parents with tears in their eyes in that crowd who knew that a mother's intuition it cannot be ever silenced or questioned. There's something there that's stronger, right? And these mothers knew there was something wrong with what they were being asked to do. They knew that masking their children was completely idiotic nonsense and child abuse. And those educators should all be jailed. They knew that, but nobody was saying anything. Still to this day, there is not a single scientist on this island asking those questions out loud. I was like, enough is enough. I did it. And I also said a really naughty word. <laughs> I said the word ivermectin. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ivermectin. Yeah. What happened after that was my employer did not appreciate uh, me saying things out loud. And I think it was two weeks from that day, I was terminated on the spot without any warning, without given the chance to, you know, be quiet. Don't do that again here. Let's slap you on the wrist. No, it was immediate on the spot. I was escorted out of the building. I couldn't even say goodbye to my team or my teammates or my boss who was working there. But the main boss from, from the US flew in to do this. And I was terminated without any ability to defend my position. I wasn't even allowed to speak in the room, nothing. And that was it. That was D-Day, actually, December 7th, so Pearl Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> a day that will live in infamy. That's right. Yeah, yes. that's right. That sounds actually draconian. And because yeah. you were speaking as a private individual, you weren't speaking for your company. No. You weren't speaking on behalf of any other person, except perhaps the children. And I, so yeah. and you, might, you might think that um, the company may have had a brand to protect or an image to protect. But that can't be in this case because you're speaking as uh, Dr. Laura Braden, not as uh, Dr. Yeah. Laura Braden of 
That's correct. Company. I am a private citizen and I'm, I'm, I'm entitled as far as I was concerned. The last time I checked my charter rights and freedoms, I was entitled to my opinion. Moreover, as someone who had extensive education in the public school system, as far as I'm concerned, people who know better have kind of this sort of moral obligation to share their information, right? Like as a scientist, you put your scientist hat on and you're meant to interpret things that people who don't have the scientific background, not saying it has anything to do with intelligence. It's just your understanding how these papers or these reports are written. It's my moral obligation to be able to communicate what is being delivered to the public to the public. But the way that it, the world works these days is that one very angry citizen on Twitter, all they have to do is write an angry tweet. That's all that needs to happen or an angry email to the PR department of the company. And that's, that's all they need. Let's just do a little bit about the medical part of this, because that's the impetus for most of us getting into this. And then it's the political aspect of it that really rankles most people because yeah okay so you have a a virus yes it was man-made yes it was funded by the united states or partially yes it was probably deliberately released because it's a level four bio lab nothing gets out of those places unless it's maybe communist china so probably deliberately released just before an election in the united states coincidentally but again let's leave that aside let's talk a bit about PCRs, sure. something you, you know a lot about. Here in New Brunswick, I looked up the cycle threshold that they used here, and it was in the high 30s, mm-hmm. low 40s. And we know from Kerry <laughs> Mullis's work and all of that, he created it, that 24 should yeah. be about fine to, to help uh, bolster a diagnosis. You, right. you appear symptomatic to your doctor, to the hospital. They think it's this. They give a PCR. Cycle threshold, 24, maybe 25. If it shows that it is that, then it's sort of a confirmation or it's another piece of the puzzle that you add to it. If you do the cycle thresholds 38, 39, 40, you're almost positive to be positive. That's right. And that's just it. PCR is meant to be a supporting evidence. Or in in the other hand, it could be a piece of evidence that would lead you to ask more questions. Hmm. Um, Never, it's never meant to be for diagnostic purposes. The tests always say that mm-hmm. it's for research. It's for asking more questions. And the fact is, is that they took an assay that really can make anything out of anything given enough opportunity. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that um, in a second, but they took this assay and I really think they, they manipulated it so badly to the public's eye that it became gospel what a PCR positive test means to the point that people didn't even ask what the test was actually asking. It didn't matter. All they saw was cases because the fear that was associated with those positive cases was sort of debilitating enough that it didn't matter what it was. It could have been anything. The PCR test, in a nutshell, you could you could swab a kiwi, <laughs> and they did. People have done this. And if you, cycle, yes. if you cycle that, if you cycle that enough times, you could make positive product. And that is the reason why... This entire charade is nothing more than that, because the only reason they were able to convince the Canadian public or the world, global public, that there was a pandemic was because of case numbers. And when you go back and you look at how many provinces in Canada specifically allowed their tests to be cycled over 35, which I would argue is the cutoff. Like when I was doing research, and by the way, I did this every day. 
every day that I was working in a lab, I either was troubleshooting PCR, I was using quantitative PCR. There's all these different very varieties of PCR that I was using all the time every day. Um, anything over 35, I immediately threw out as garbage because that's what it was. And you get spurious products, you get binding of, of nucleotides, and they just sort of make a product. And because it's showing on the screen that it's a fluorescent and it's something, you think that that's what it is, but they're not going back and showing every test that shows a positive case is actually for COVID. They're not sequencing every product, right? So you have to do that. That's part of the whole process of showing that it's good science. Um, but they just wanted cases so fast. Well, that's another making- issue um, is the word case. Prior to this um, charade, the word case meant appearing in front of your doctor with symptoms. You were symptomatic. That was a case. That's right. You know, you have a case of the flu. Yes. Because you feel it. You have symptoms. Now, healthy people are going, lining up in their vehicles to get the swab, testing positive, and now they call it a case. Mm -hmm. Asymptomatic, which means it meant up until... March of 2020, it meant that asymptomatic meant you cannot give it to mm-hmm. anybody else, except perhaps in rare circumstances. But now you're a case. Mm-hmm. Isolate yourself, even though you're asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. And we'll ramp up those numbers to show mm-hmm. that uh, we've got a lot of cases here. Exactly. I mean, it must be the speed of science, Robert. That's what we're missing. So, so I couldn't help myself. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market. If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping the immunization before um, it entered the market? No, uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. And from that point of view, we had to do everything at risk. So exactly the cases and the, and the high cycle thresholds, it was so ludicrous. I wouldn't have been able to publish that. No scientist, you would have gotten thrown out. The reviewers, when you go through the peer review process, if I had ever seen people trying to publish that, I would have laughed it out of the room. So this is the National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology Information. All I want to do is share what they've said. All right. This is interesting. So biomedicine. Now, this was published September 1st of 2022, just a couple months ago. COVID-19 vaccines and the misinterpretation of perceived side effects, clarity on the safety of vaccines. So listen to them. In the era of COVID-19 and mass vaccination programs, the anti-vaccination movement across the world is currently at an all-time high. I wonder why that's happening. Any thoughts? Much of this anti-vaccination sentiment could be attributed to the alleged side effects that are the alleged side effects that are perpetuated across social media from anti-vaccination groups. Okay. Fear-mongering and misinformation being peddled by people with no scientific training to terrorize people into staying unvaccinated is not just causing people to remain susceptible to viral outbreaks, but could also, listen to this, They could also be causing more side effects seen in the vaccination process. 
Well, I thought there weren't any, really. They were only, they're only perceived or whatever. So this brief review will offer data that may demonstrate that misinformation perpetuated by the anti-vaccination movement may be causing more deaths. So our information is causing more deaths and side effects from any vaccine. A mini-review of published literature has been conducted and found that mental stress clearly causes vasoconstriction and arterial constriction of the blood vessels. Therefore, if subjects are panicked, concerned, stressed, or scared of the vaccination, their arteries will constrict and become smaller in and around the time of receiving the vaccine. So this biological mechanism, the constriction of veins, arteries, and vessels under mental stress is the most likely cause for where there has been blood clots, strokes, heart attacks, dizziness, fainting, blurred vision, loss of smell and taste that may have been experienced shortly after vaccine administration. The extreme mental stress of the patient could most likely be attributed to the fear-mongering and scare tactics used by various anti-vaccination groups. This paper does not aim to rule in or out every side effect seen. No, no, it's very open to the fact there could be side effects. But it is highly likely that many apparent side effects seen shortly after a subject has received a vaccine could be the result of restricted or congested blood flow from blood vessel or arterial constriction caused by emotional distress or placebo based on fear around vaccines. So therefore, it is those who are causing fear. Now, if you're fearful, I wonder why you're going to get it. I don't know that many people that want to do that. They're, they're, they're pretty much like, rah, rah, I'm ready for my fourth booster. I'm going now. So I just wanted to share that with you, that this is sort of their perspective, is it's not the vaccines, it's, it's the fear mongers, it's the anti-vaxxers that are causing stress. Therefore, the vaccines cause blood clots, heart attacks, and myocarditis, that's coming out. So very, very interesting. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And our discussion with Dr. Laura Braden continues. Let's move on to another okay. area. We, we covered PCRs. We covered the changing language of cases. How about the changing language of herd immunity? Oh, <laughs> I I remember seeing that. And I don't know if I have the screenshot of in the WHO, that, that, that changing language of the CDC. Isn't that fascinating? Again, the speed of science. We're way behind. It's, these things are just changing so fast. Herd immunity. Yeah, I struggle with how... We're, we're, we're literally taking things out of textbooks and like with a redacting pencil, just changing things into like, what, you know, what is gene there? What is a vaccine? What is a vaccine even? Or yes. herd, natural immunity, like what, what, all of these things. I don't think it matters what they change it to because they're just going to change it again. I really feel as though at this point, scientists who are okay with that they've lost their lot there. They've lost themselves along the way somehow. And it wouldn't even matter what they changed it back to. 
but yeah, herd, herd immunity being like one of the most, one of the most key sort of fundamental tenets of how immunological systems work in, in vertebrates and how we kind of rely on that. Herd immunity mm-hmm. is incredibly important. And the vaccines that they call the vaccines, the products, were completely in contravention of any herd immunity that could have ever happened. They erased the potential for herd immunity with the vaccination regimes because the vaccines essentially pushed the viruses to mutate to the to the next variant, to the next variant, to the next variant, that herd immunity would never be achieved. Dr. And in so doing so... Yeah. In a recent interview I did with Dr. Roger Hodkinson, he mentioned the same thing, is that the worst thing that they did was introduce that vaccine so quickly. Vaccine Absolutely. in quotes. Because Absolutely. again, yeah, it caused mutations. That's right. If they had just left that sucker alone, I mean, if they had done a lot of things, it's funny because we're we're having a conversation, like there's some rational thought. And like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, if they had just allowed us to be prescribed that real safe Nobel Peace Prize winning drug and vitamin D, everybody would be fine. I mean, I say that, of course, there's people who are vulnerable and there's people who need to be protected. That's, That's the great Barrington Declaration was, was just that. Focus on the, on the people who need it. Yes, the elderly, not and the kids. And there were thousands of doctors who signed that declaration, thousands. And it was totally ignored. Yeah, Not even mentioned in the mainstream press, or if it was, I didn't see it. And you know, it just didn't fit in with the narrative. And that's another aspect of this story that perhaps, I don't know your expertise in this, but the press, mm-hmm. the media, mm-hmm. they've, you've never had an, a media that had not had an agenda. The Toronto Star was set up as a Liberal Party paper back in the day. I did not and, know that. Interesting. Yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just look into the research, the history of the Toronto Star, just for an example. But all the other newspapers had competing agendas and you go back into the time of Pulitzer versus um, uh, Hearst, Pulitzer versus Hearst in New York City, um, they started yellow journalism, trying to outcompete each other in sensationalism and fear mongering. And that was a hundred years ago. So it should come as no surprise that here in New Brunswick, for example, the Irving family own all of the newspapers, but one that I could find down around St. Stephen area, and so everything is this one narrative, one narrative. And it's all about lockdowns, all about masking, all about vaccines, all about pushing needles in arms, all about closing the border. When I moved here, I had to show my papers. I had to register on, online to come across the border in Canada, where I am guaranteed mobility rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedom. I had to stop at the kiosk in Edmonston area and show my papers, my the purchase agreement for this house before they would let me in. And if I didn't show that, I would have to go back to Ontario or maybe back to Riverloo <laughs> and live in a hotel for a while. But this in Canada, I- because the, the media are pushing a narrative which feeds the fear of the people oh, and the politicians gosh. who do nasty stuff. Like crossing the bridge into a PEI, forget that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I was there. It's funny. I thought there was a little war called World War II that my grandfather fought in that sort of kind of obviated the need for us to show our papers in this country. It's interesting how we're kind of back to that. Our Gesundpass. That's right. That's right. That's shocking. And I, I did experience that firsthand. I was 
very proud to say that my husband and I, we went to Ottawa for the Freedom Convoy in January and February and experienced so much sort of unfettered and just raw love for Canadians. It didn't matter who you were. It sort of kind of ignited the drive to continue to fight for this country because there clearly was a country left. But being isolated from that for so long, I think a lot of people started to lose that, you know, that feeling of connectivity. Anyways, when we came home to PEI, we weren't allowed to cross the bridge. They stopped us on the other side and they, they asked us for our vaccine passport and asked us for a bunch of information. And we, we refused because I didn't know this masked person who stopped me on the Trans Canada. I thought they might rob us. Like, you know, who are you? Show me your credentials. This poor kid. And they didn't have any right to stop us on a highway, but they did. They pulled the door down so we couldn't drive through. And then we refused to capitulate and they called the cops. And uh, the RCMP officer who looked very irritated to be there at four o'clock in the morning, uh, like minus 500 degrees, Listen, I don't. I know my rights, man. And he said, "Well, now I've tr- I've stopped you in a traffic stop, so you can either give me your information or you'll get fined." So we, you know, we gave our information, but then we were on house arrest. We couldn't leave for fourteen days. We were on house arrest. Totally fine. So getting back, I, I wanted to circle back to something that you mentioned. I am still waiting for any evidence, still for asymptomatic spread of COVID. Have you seen anything of that? Have you seen anything to that nature, Robert? Because I I imagine a couple of doctors would also be interested to hear. I think you might remember during the very first days of the um, so-called pandemic, and I think it was probably even before they labeled it, the World Health Organization labeled as pandemic, you had this one woman representative of WHO, and she said that uh, don't worry about asymptomatic transmission because it's very rare. It still appears to be rare that an asymptomatic individual actually transmits onward. What we really want to be focused on are is following the symptomatic cases. If we followed all of the symptomatic cases, because we know that this is a respiratory pathogen, it passes from an individual through infectious droplets. If we actually followed all of the symptomatic cases, isolated those cases, followed the contacts and quarantined those contacts, we would drastically reduce. I would love to be able to give a proportion of how much transmission we would actually stop, but it would be a drastic reduction in transmission. If we could focus on that, I think we would we would do very, very well in terms of suppressing transmission. But from the data we have, it still seems to be rare that an asymptomatic person actually transmits onward to a secondary individual. Interesting. The next day, she the next day she had to apologize and walk it back. Yeah. <laughs> right. Still waiting for that. Still waiting for that. Yeah. It would. It sure would blow apart the whole um, sort of any kind of justification to wear a, a face nappy and and breathe in your own exhaust and be one of those mass you know expressionless slaves in the system. Okay. <laughs> Asymptomatic transmission, according to my lay knowledge of it, is extremely rare. Yes. Is that is that not your understanding? That is. I was being facetious, very facetious. We are still waiting. That's one of the things that, among others, Dr. Byron Bridal certainly was asking for some explanation or justification for their sort of assertion that asymptomatic spread was an issue, therefore necessitating face masks, even though face masks, even on the box, say that they don't they don't stop the spread of viral particles. The whole thing is just a sham. Yet no single person that you ask on the street would understand any of those things or know that they existed or know that they didn't have any evidence for asymptomatic spread or even what that meant, you know? Yes. 
Yeah. Or th- when they go and buy their boxes of 3M masks, they don't turn it around and read. This does not stop viral transmission. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my dear. You made a comment in a recent interview on a Canadian story where you talked about the difference between intelligence and wisdom right. and political leaders, uh, because there's a lot of very intelligent people in Parliament. You don't get there unless you know something about something. But there's no wise men there or no wise people there at all. So do you want to just just expand sure. on that a bit? Yeah. Well, it really bothers me, though, um, not that, that you brought it up, but just the whole concept, because, you know, we have these people and it's not just politicians. You could look across the board at any institution. We have people that for all intents and purposes, Canadians are are meant to trust these people. We are supposed to trust them. To have our best interests, always Canadians' best interests or patients, if you're a doctor, your patients' best interest at heart, always. I mean, in some cases, there's an oath. <laughs> you know, if you're a doctor or a fire, you know, a police officer, there's oaths that you take to uphold these principles that are so sacred. And they're there for a reason. They're there to instill this feeling of trust in the general public. And the fact that for the last way longer than three years, but so overtly in the last three years, that trust has been denigrated and dismantled and just, and it's so explicitly done now. Like you look at the last couple of weeks of the emergency commission, emergency act commission, and you, you look at Justin Trudeau lie through his teeth with his lawyer, like that he didn't call anti-vaccinated people any names. Mm-hmm. That man called me a misogynist, racist, terrorist, extremist, what else? And there's no accountability. The trust is gone. There's no principles. And that's a really, really strong example. But we have even the growth, the, the grass level, you know, type politics, municipalities, MLAs and MPs in, the, in our respective provinces that we elect because we trust them and that they go and break that. And you're right. They're really smart. And that's how they got there. They're cunning. They're driven by their ego. Their ego is the reason that they are there. And here's an excellent example. And I won't name names, but if he ever heard this, he'd know. There is a very young MLA here on PEI. And last year, I made it my, my life's mission to reach as many MLAs as I possibly could. Because as far as I was concerned, and now we are seeing this come to fruition, children are going to die. Children are going to die. Dr. Hodkinson talks about many, many people who are in the same mindset in the truth community who are screaming from the rafters. This is going to kill kids. Is that going to be enough for you, Dr. Morrison? Danny King, is that going to be enough? So I, I see these kids and it's just, it, it, I was so compelled to reach as many MLAs just to give them the other side of the story. Did you know about this person, this person? Can, can I get you an interview with Dr. Byron Bridal? Because he'll zoom right in and talk to you. Would you like that? And I, I reached quite a few. Um, sadly, I, again, the politics here is just as incestuous and swamp-like as it is across Canada. Um, but there was this one MLA, and he's very young, the youngest on, on PEI, very career-driven, very focused, very smart. And he said to me, to my face, I know exactly what you say is true. Absolutely. I've known this from the beginning. 
And I said, oh, I was so excited. I was like, oh, well, thank you. I was thinking we were going to get to work tomorrow. We were going to take that. We were going to tear this down. I said, okay, so what are you going to do about it? Nothing, because I'm not going to risk my career for this. And over the I, lives of children. Over the lives of children. And this person is a coffee coach, young kids. And I know of at least two kids on PEI who have died within a week post-jab under 10 years old in their sleep. That's on him. That's on Heather Morrison. That's on the Public Health Office of Canada. These people have taken the trust of Canadians and completely destroyed it. And at the lives of innocence. And so we talk about this ego, the ego of that individual that was there where he wasn't even, even able to have a conversation about how to, how to prevent more harm because his political career was at stake. And I just lost mine because I'm the only, what the cowardice that must be there in that person. It's, um, it's shocking. It was really shocking and so discouraging, Robert. Imagine. That's, that's the word cowardice, I think, um, a, a lack of integrity. I have two questions. Question one, why should we put up with the pain predicted in our future by the same people who made it inevitable? And question two, how quickly do they think we forget what only just happened? None of them has added so much as a jot to their store of wisdom. They've learned nothing, except, of course, the priceless knowledge relevant only to senior MPs that if you just brass it out in the face of the most monumental cock-up of your career, it turns out you can pretty much get away with murder. We can see this. In fact, our noses are rubbed in the reality of it daily. Every time we have to look at the same old faces, unrepentant, blind and deaf to any notion that there might be confessions required, responsibility taken for the most inexcusable mistakes, grovelling apologies offered for unimaginable damage done, hurts inflicted that cannot and will not heal, they should be in exile on Elba, the sorry lot of them, and yet there they are, business as usual, and telling us the bill is past due. Of course the bill is past due, the gormless fools. It was them that ran it up in the first place, while some of us, some of us, looked on in horror at the truck crash happening in slow motion. But remember at all times that it's not Covid's fault we're flat broke, or Putin's fault, or the climate's fault. You can't blame the rain if you get soaked. The rain is inevitable. You get soaked because you gave away your coat and you didn't buy an umbrella. We're getting soaked, drowning, because of two years in which the establishment shut down the country and the economy. We're out in the cold because of a decade and more of destructive energy policies that mean we have none of our own and have to go cap in hand to others to keep the lights on. The fault is theirs, our political class and their masters, those that designed, choreographed and executed the plan. The fact we're in the deepest financial hole ever dug is down to those that shut us in our homes, or tried to, and then conjured up unimaginable sums of money that didn't exist and sprayed it all over the floor, up the walls and down the drains. Those usual suspects threw billions into the pointless, ineffectual money pit of track and trace. They blew billions more on useless and unused PPE and on gazillions of masks that made no difference other than to stoke the fear of millions of men, women and children and litter the countryside and choke the oceans. They coerced millions into taking medical products that, as time has told, didn't work as advertised. Nonetheless, they nudged and pushed and finally bullied and threatened the majority of people into putting themselves under the needle, not once but several times. Now their propagandists are out and about again, pushing the same old drugs with an influenza chaser just for good measure. 
If it wasn't so coldly calculated, you'd have to say it was insane. As far as I'm concerned, it should be described as criminally insane. And now to add insult to all the injury, and let's not forget the millions of adverse effects suffered around the world, the deaths attributed to the jabs, we have to listen to the architects of our imminent financial misery and demise, telling us we just have to endure the pain, the pain they knowingly caused are continuing to cause, and that they're manoeuvring to make even worse. Let's all pay attention, we're talking here about the very stuff of life upon which every soul depends. The decisions affecting all our lives in every conceivable way about food and money and round-the-clock surveillance continue to be discussed and made by unelected, unaccountable advocates of one-world government. Over and over, we're told the world is coming to an end on account of climate change that's all humankind's fault. And yet the measures being contemplated at COP27 will surely mean the end anyway for hundreds of millions, billions of people driven into the cold and bony arms of starvation, disease, war and death by suicidal policies born of vanity, hubris and the pursuit of yet more wealth by the few for the few. All of which brings me back to my second question about the apparently misfiring memories of those desperate, utterly desperate to pretend the last two years never happened or if they did happen, that they happened altogether differently than I remember. George Orwell wrote about memory holing in his novel 1984, the process by which information that no longer helps the official narrative is made to disappear as if it had never existed. Just as if, for instance, they're trying to tell us now that no one ever said the so-called vaccines would prevent the spread of COVID from person to person. They damn well did say that, over and over again. That was the entire basis for the granny killer selfish covid abuse directed at those of us who never did and never will submit to those jabs. To claim now that such claims were never made is the most blatant and shameless of lies, damned lies, and yet it's pushed now by politicians, medical professionals and mainstream media alike. It can only be a matter of time, presumably when the numbers of vaccine dead and injured simply get too terrifyingly big to ignore, before the same characters are saying the jabs were voluntary anyway, and that it was always and only a matter of personal choice whether you took them or not. Don't come crying to me, they'll say, in unison. In Orwell's novel of a dystopian future, the totalitarian government of Oceania was constantly at war with one of the other two totalitarian superpowers that dominated the world, Eurasia and East Asia. It wasn't about ever winning or ending the war, but rather maintaining a constant state of war in order to keep the citizens under control. Every citizen had to memory hold what each knew to be true and just accept the latest version of reality. Orwell called this doublethink. Quote, to know and not to know, he wrote, to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies, to forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into the memory again at the moment it was needed. This is where we are now, listening to those who know the truth telling carefully constructed lies. Worse still, we are supposed to lie to each other and to ourselves about what just happened. We're expected to forget that those promising to fix the disaster are the same people that caused the disaster. But here's the thing, I for one won't be forgetting any of it. I remember everything. What's been done stays done. What's been said stays said. It's up to us to remember, to remember everything that happened and to keep reminding everyone else as well. So I asked Dr. Hodkinson, should we forgive and forget? Well, I'll ask, you, I'll ask you as well. Shall we forgive and forget? 
I can imagine. Actually, I do remember what he said, and I won't repeat it. <laughs> Dr. Hodkinson, um, bless him. He's, he's, a, he's a fierce warrior, and I love that man dearly. And I concur 100%. There will be absolutely no forgiveness, um, no amnesty. There cannot be, they cannot get away with what they've done. They can't. That is, that will be, that is the hill that I will die on. It can't happen because they were given every opportunity to fix it. I remember when we were in Ottawa um, during the truckers convoy, uh, there was a number of different doctors there, including Dr. Hodkinson. It's where I met him on the stage, just being himself and just, you know, no shit's given, excuse my French, but not, not one given. Like I'm going to speak my truth and I am here and this, you need to listen to me. Anyways, and Dr. Byron Bridal, Dr. Paul Alexander, and, and a number of different doctors who were in Ottawa to support the truckers saying, listen, you know, these are the guys that are and the girls who are brave enough to do what they did and drove across the country and organize this massive, beautiful movement. They're not wrong. And this is why. So we decided to uh, invite Dr. Teresa Tam and, and um, some, uh, Dr. Shelley Deeks from, from NASI to have a conversation. Let's get in the room. You guys bring your science and let's talk about it because we don't see what you're seeing. Um, and we didn't get a reply, uh, RSVP or anything. And we know that they got the emails, but you know, that's just it. They had the opportunity several times, several times over to do the right thing. And if there was any remorse, if there was any indication um, or, or, or any sort of um, humanity in the politicians, who have basically ruined our country and stolen our freedoms from us for the last three years, they would have taken that opportunity. Oh, we reviewed the science and we're so, like, we're not sorry, but you know, things change and blah, blah, blah. And just go back to being normal. Like they did in some other countries that recognized that they needed to do that, or they were going to be set on fire. <laughs> like what was one Romania maybe, or I'm not sure, but you know, they didn't take that opportunity and instead they doubled down and instead they pitted neighbor against neighbor. They prevented me from seeing my father and him meeting his granddaughter. And it's been three ever loving years and he still hasn't because we're not going to get on a plane when I know that, that pilots are dying being, you know what I mean? They've ruined life experiences and those people will never get away with that. Mm. There's a, um, a, a Scottish pundit, um, for GB News, I believe. Uh, you probably know him. Remarkable speaker. Yes. And I, I can only reiterate what he said there about uh, a month ago, oh. and that is prior to this, we always thought that regardless of what side of the political spectrum you were on, left or right, um, we knew that the people who got into power had the best interests of the country at heart. And he says, we can no longer think that. They don't give a damn about us. Doesn't matter what party they are from. Maxime Bernier and the People's Party excluded. Um, they don't care. And now we know how evil these people are. There may be one, two, three handful of senators, especially, I know, um, and, and parliamentarians, either at the provincial or federal level, but they're cowards. And um, they didn't speak up. Even Polyev didn't speak up when the speaking up was necessary. So, yeah, that, that I think is one of the worst takeaways from this whole thing is that we are now living in abject fear of our politicians. 
because we know what they can do mm-hmm. with impunity. Exactly. So yeah, they should not get away with it. So mm-hmm. um, just let's just finish off by um, expanding a bit about your take back, um, take back our freedoms um, movement sure. as well. So taking back our freedoms was co-founded by two gentlemen in Alberta, Roy Byers and George Bears. I'm a director of the board. And we, you know, it's, it started in Alberta, but it's kind of cross country now. And the idea is to educate and empower people to take back your freedoms based on the whole notion that we have this piece of paper that although is stamped on sort of spit on by some, it says that I have my own bodily autonomy and I'm allowed to do what I want with my body and the government can't tell me to do what I want with my body. Oh, and by the way, I can leave Canada and come back and I don't have to take any genetic test and I don't have to inject my body and I can move freely within my country and all of these things that we hold so dear. But the problem, um, Robert, is that we never had to defend those freedoms before as Canadians and we really didn't understand that we had them. People didn't understand the freedoms that you had because then they were lost and they didn't even miss them. People ask you, what freedoms have you lost? You could still do this, that. So I couldn't go to a restaurant with you right now. I can't get on a plane. I can't travel. I'm basically ostracized and discriminated against on a daily basis because I refuse to wear a diaper on my face. And that's my choice. And so those freedoms that people didn't even realize they had, but once we start opening their eyes to the fact that you do, it's so powerful. So really people needed to be educated and this is a great vessel for that. And the board of advisors has some remarkable people. Maxime Bernier is, is, is on the board of advisors and, and it's really, it's meant to be apolitical, but I'm going to call a spade a spade here. That politician whom I've met several times, he is a lovely man. He was the only person from day one in the political sphere speaking up against this nonsense. He was the only one. Call the PPC whatever name you want, but they are the Canadian party. They are for the people. And he is about taking back our freedoms. And I believe in that party. I really, truly do. So taking back our freedoms is apolitical. It's just about the people getting back their lives and taking our country back and being sovereign again, and and maybe not being run by globalist agendas. Um, There's initiatives. One of the things that we're involved in, of course, is a national citizens inquiry. We were involved in some informed consent initiatives. One of the things that we had been doing was talking to politicians. And I, and like, like I said, last year, I was really trying. I, I tried. I was driving all over this freaking island trying to talk to people. But what that taught me is that they don't care. And grassroots is where we take our country back. Yeah, well said. Dr. Laura Braden, thank you very much for all you do and for standing up for um, the rights of not just Canadians, but the the children of of this country as well. And um, I hope that you are able to pursue your dreams um, professionally, if that's where you choose to go, uh, perhaps when things uh, blow over, if they ever will. Though I think that things like TBOF, uh, take back or taking back our freedoms, is probably going to be necessary forever, because the left never give up. The okay. sinister forces in this country never give up. It's a constant battle. Thank you very much for joining me today. It was Thank an you. absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Eternal vigilance, anyone? The condition of freedom, of course, is a singular condition that applies to all human action and to civilization itself. And by that I mean there are no freedoms, plural, as such. Freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of choice, freedom of religion, freedom of bodily autonomy, healthcare freedom, political freedom, freedom to walk, freedom to talk, freedom to dance, sexual freedom, freedom of the press, and on and on and on. But consider this. When we speak of freedom in these terms, our subject matter and focus is not really on freedom itself, is it? It's on a particular violation or restriction of a particular action that we're talking about. And while this is perfectly valid and legitimate to do, there is a danger in doing so. Because consider how often, for example, those championing, say, religious freedom might oppose certain aspects of sexual freedom and vice versa. Any combination of divisions between people of differing freedoms, plural, are possible, once freedoms, plural, are only understood in this piecemeal manner. Unless everyone's on the same page with regard to the greater principle of freedom at stake, they will all continue to see their freedoms, plural, constantly chipped away. And most importantly, any of the plural freedoms mentioned before do not only apply to the freedom to do whatever action is being discussed, but to not do any of the actions associated with a particular aspect of freedom. To do or not to do, that is the question. Never forget that the so-called freedoms in the plural come in a single, indivisible package. And like existence itself, freedom is a condition. It's not a thing. It arises in a society comprised of individuals who understand and are committed to the principles of life, liberty, and property, the holy trinity of freedom itself. Freedom is the condition that properly aligns with the right side of the political polarity and the operative political principle of a free society is consent. A group may arrive at some consensus, but only an individual is capable of consent, which is why there is no such thing as group freedoms. There is only individual freedom. Which brings us back to the incredibly fundamental principle of informed consent on the issue of vaccine freedom and choice, doesn't it? So I'll ask it again. Up for some eternal vigilance, anyone? <laughs> if so, you know exactly where to be one week from now when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I'm afraid the doctor isn't going to have time to see any salesmen today. Oh, but I have to fly back to San Francisco tonight. Oh, Miss Murray, would you get me the Henderson X-rays, yes, please? Sir. Thank you. Oh, Dr. Clyburn, I I'm from Hencal Pharmaceuticals. Another time, please. I've had a hard day. But I have this new combiotic. Another time. I've been trying to see you for several days. I'm busy. But just take a look at my tetracycline combiotic. I haven't time. Show it to another doctor. I've been to every doctor in the building. You're the last one. Then come back tomorrow. Tomorrow's too late. I'll be gone. <laughs> That's your problem. You poor man. I heard what he said to you, but all doctors are not like him. What is it you wanted to show him?
I have an advanced tetracycline combiotic. Lord love you. I got something that leaves your pain. You'll have to come to my office. I can't come to your office. Catch him, lunch, bout. There's no time to lose. What about my case? I'm taking it. 